All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to start. So uh, let me open us with a word of prayer and then we'll listen just a little bit more to the music and see if you can figure out what that is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening and for this chance to gather in your name. We thank you for these great books that we have the opportunity to study that help us to learn more about you and your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together tonight, that you would use it to strengthen us in our hearts, minds, and souls, that we might love you more fully. And we pray that all we do would give glory to your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so does anybody know what this is that we're listening to? I'll give you a clue. Yes! Good job, Glow Avid. All right, yes. How lovely is thy dwelling place? And that is going to relate to what we're talking about tonight. It is by Johannes Brahms. If you do not know this piece, please go listen to it. It is beautiful. It is right out of the scriptures. And if your heart is feeling cold and overwhelmed, uh, this is a wonderful piece of music to soften it. So I commend that to you. I wish we could listen to the whole thing, but we're not going to do that so we can move ahead. How Lovely is Thy Dwelling Place by Johannes Brahms. B-R-A-H-M-S. There we go. So, let's begin, as usual, by saying together our scripture verse. And as we say this, uh, please think about what we are hearing from the Apostle Paul here, especially the part about awake, O sleeper, which is so relevant for Advent. So let's say this together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, just a word of welcome to any of you who are new here tonight, and those who are on the live stream who may not have joined us before. We are delighted that you are here. Uh, there are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you show up from time to time. You might occasionally glance toward the screen, uh, but you can be preoccupied with your own thoughts and you're just getting a little bit by osmosis. And if that's all you want to do, that is great. I'm delighted to have you. Or you can be snorkeling, where you really pay attention in some things, and then in other things, you may be looking at your Instagram. That is fine, too. Or you could scuba dive, which means that you follow everything in class, 
you read the long emails that I send each week, you click on all of the links, you read the essays and the articles. Um, if you want to do that, you are very welcome to come right down the rabbit hole with me. Uh, on any of those, though, what I would encourage you to do, if you are not on my email list, please uh, send me an email if you're out of town um, hearing this. Uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, and you can get right to my email and ask me to add you, and I will, because those resources that come in the email are really an important part of the class. So we are now in That Hideous Strength, which is much easier to read than The Abolition of Man was. However, it is still not quite a walk in the park. So I would encourage you to still read one chapter at a time. Make a chart of the characters. There are a lot of characters in this book. Um, look for and note where themes out of the abolition of man appear. So we're going to be looking at a framework for appreciating these books, unpacking their meaning, looking at how they are relevant for today. So just a couple of things in a quick summary. First, the main themes of the three chapters of the abolition of man, men without chest. That's the whole idea of how important objective value is, understanding that there is right and wrong. There is beauty, truth, and goodness, and those are objective things. They're not subjective opinions. The second chapter, the way, or the Tao, as Lewis calls it, or natural law, or the law of human nature, whatever you want to call it, the idea of right and wrong is the sole source of all value judgments. And that is expressed not only in the Judeo-Christian scriptures, but in ethical systems across religions and cultures and time periods. And then the last chapter, Lewis talks about the idea of progress and the idea of man's control over nature and this idea that we can subdue nature and turn it to our own ends. And he says, in fact, what that really means is that some men will be able to use nature as their instrument to control others, that it is not so much about subduing nature as it is to establish uh, a group of people who are in power. So that gets us to the Ransom Trilogy, or the Space Trilogy. There are a lot of different names for this trilogy. Uh, and if you are scuba diving, please go and read Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra. You can read that hideous strength on its own. It stands on its own just fine. Uh, but it is all the more rich when you read the other ones. So in the first book of the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Ransom, who is a Cambridge professor on holiday, is kidnapped by this evil physicist and his partner, Divine, misspelled. Lewis loves to play with things like that. Um, every name, everything means something. So Divine is a sleazy businessman, and they kidnap Ransom to take him to Mars in a spaceship where they tell him he's going to be a human sacrifice. So you can imagine that was probably not a particularly pleasant journey. Uh, but he escapes when he gets there. He befriends the people in the Martian village, and he learns that in the solar system, there is an archangel called an Oyarsa for each planet, but that Earth, which they call Thulkandra, Earth is the planet where the archangel fell. He turned because of pride, and he wanted to be God himself, just like what we know about Satan, 
and therefore Earth is now the silent planet. It is cut off from the rest of the cosmos, the rest of the kingdom. So then we go to Perilandra. Uh, Perilandra is the name for the planet Venus. And in that book, Lewis imagines an unfallen world. There's an Adam and Eve type figure. Um, there's no sin that's entered the world. And then, of course, good old Weston, who spoiled everything and out of the silent planet, manages to get into Perilandra as well. And so he and Ransom have to battle it out. You might have noticed the word Ransom, the name Ransom. Hello. Uh, in Mark 10, Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So ransom is clearly a Christ figure. That's not a secret. And then in that hideous strength, all of this comes to a head, and it starts off in academia, where everything is going wrong and going off the rails. Hmm. Can't imagine what that might be like. So academia, the university systems, everything is going off the rails, very much in the way that we heard about in the abolition of man. And Lewis pulls in some old King Arthur legend. He pulls in a lot about spiritual warfare, spiritual combat, and the college there is overwhelmed by this group called the Nice. How could you be against something called the Nice? They sound so nice. But the Nice is evil. And they have a plan to try to find the old magician wizard Merlin and wake him up and turn him into sort of a dark superhero um, working for the demons in the universe. So that is basically what is going on. Um, in the cosmology of deep heaven, just a couple of terms to keep in mind if you make a chart. These are good things to uh, put in there. So the bent one is the name for the Oyarsa of Earth, whom we would call Satan, the bent one. Um, Eldilla are like angels. They are um, directed by God. They can take on bodily form. They also can just be spiritual form. The Oyarsa are like archangels, and they correspond to sort of the uh, medieval cosmology and the idea of each planet. Um, Hanau is, uh, in the old solar language, a lot of people don't realize Lewis invented a language. It's not just Tolkien who had the corner on that. Um, and the old solar is the one that Lewis invents, and Hanau means humans. And this old solar language is a lot like the logos in the prologue to the Gospel of John. It's this rich, creative language that when it's spoken, it has a weightiness and it is pregnant with creative power. So when it is spoken, it causes things to happen. So uh, in the front matter of the book, whenever you read something by Lewis, always pay attention to the front matter because he is uh, very strategic about what goes there. So he starts off with a quotation from an obscure poem from the 16th century by Sir David Lindsay called An Dialogue that is describing the Tower of Babel. The shadow of that hideous strength, oh, maybe that's where the title came from. The shadow of that hideous strength, six mile and more it is of length. And of course, the whole idea 
is that hideous strength, the Tower of Babel, is man saying, we don't need God, we are progressive, modern people, all that stuff is outdated, forget that, we are so much smarter than that, and we can create utopia. If we just get enough education in people, and we just get the government to have the right programs, then everything is going to be fine. Hmm. So, um, then there's a little review of that hideous strength by George Orwell, whom you might know is the author of 1984 and Animal Farm. And Orwell loved that hideous strength, except he hated the fact that he said, why did Lewis have to ruin the story by putting in all this supernatural stuff? i.e. the Christian part. So, he's entitled to his opinion. But Orwell said this about the story, plenty of people in our age do entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, and we are within sight of the time when such dreams will be realizable. So, uh, from the preface, this one sentence tells you a lot. Each part of the sentence is important. Lewis says, this is a tall story, that's a little pun on the Tower of Babel, this is a tall story about devilry. For an Oxford professor to say he's writing about devilry in the 1940s, that is bold. And he says, Though it has behind it a serious point, which I've tried to make in my abolition of man. So Lewis is taking very seriously the idea of evil and of spiritual warfare and of people beings that are out there attacking people of faith. So, uh, characters. There are a lot of characters in this book, so hang in there with me on this. So, Jane Tudor Studdock is the one who is leading off the book. She has not been to church since her school days except to get married. So, that tells you something right there. Um, she got married to this guy that they had a great courtship, and she's working on her doctoral thesis on John Donne, um, but she's a modern woman, a modern woman. She really um, finds it appalling, the idea of childbearing, and so she feels in order to be fulfilled, she must be the equal in every way of her husband in his academic career, and she doesn't want something old-fashioned like motherhood to get in the way of that. So she is um, someone who has dreams. And so she has this dream that's pretty horrible about this guy. And some people come in in sort of this lab sort of setting. And they walk up to the guy and they grab him by the head. And they twist and twist and twist till his head pops off. It's kind of gruesome. And so she's very disturbed by that. But she's even more disturbed the next morning when she looks in the newspaper and there's a picture of the guy whose head was pulled off on the front page of the newspaper saying he was being executed for poisoning his wife. So um, that is Francois Alcasson, who is an Arabian radiologist who poisoned his wife and ended up being beheaded for that. And Jane also sees people in the stream who speak to him in French. So, then we have Merlin. Merlin, the ancient druidical bearded man um, who is from the King Arthur legends. Um, he also appears in Jane's dream. She doesn't know who he is, but it's this man who looks like he's dead that's coming to life and appears to be speaking Spanish. 
So she's very confused because she's got this head and then this guy, and she's like, why am I dreaming these things when I'm in an English university town? Mark, her husband, is a fellow in sociology. And just as a little clue, Lewis thought sociology was a joke. He thought most social sciences were not real. Um, he thought there was not intellectual integrity to the courses of study, and that it was basically much ado about nothing. So Lewis is basically saying here he does not have a high opinion of Mark Studdock's academic background. Studdock is a fellow at Bracton College, and he talks with the subwarden, who's like the dean of the university, and discovers that he is being invited into the inner circle, the inner ring, the progressive element in the university. And he learns, much to his chagrin, that he thought he had gotten this job as a fellow because he was so awesome. And he finds out that it was actually because this guy named Lord Feverstone, that's another fun name, Lord Feverstone intervened on his behalf. Well, Lord Feverstone, remember Dick Devine, the sleazy businessman? He made enough money that he became Lord Feverstone. So he's back. Um, Subwarden Curry is the guy at Bracton College who is trying to get the college um, to cooperate with the nice so that they could begin the really scientific era that will usher in the age of progress where everything will be wonderful and there will be no more disease or hunger or sadness or anything else. Um, Feverstone, Dick Devine, um, has been around the block several times in the Space Trilogy. He is not a good guy. Arthur Denniston is the guy who really should have gotten Mark's job. Um, he is a better intellectual, um, but he has character. That was why they wanted Mark, because he was more malleable. So when they were talking about why they didn't choose Denniston, uh, the dean says this. One sees now that Denniston would never have done, most emphatically not. A brilliant man at that time, of course, but he seems to have gone quite off the rails then with all his distributivism and whatnot. They tell me he's likely to end up in a monastery. Now, for people who are the progressive element, only antediluvian idiots would believe in religion or think about a monastery. So that's like the worst thing you could say. Um, and then the Dembles we're going to meet this week. Um, Dr. Demble is a professor of English literature at Northumberland College, which is in the same small town, and his wife uh, lives with him, and Jane studied with them when she was in college. He was her tutor, and they live adjacent to Bragdon Wood. So um, we talked last week about the first part of the first chapter, and we talked about um, Jane and this dream. We talked about Mark um, being courted by this progressive element and the lure of that inner ring. Even if you know that it's maybe a little bit shady and maybe there are some things that are not as they should be, it's going to help you get ahead. And so you want to just sort of overlook whatever your scruples might be about it and just get in so that you can move on and move up with the movers and shakers. And so Mark is right in the midst of that. So there were a couple of themes last week. The disembodied head. Remember Men Without Chests in that Abolition of Man book? Um, the idea that sociology is not real science. 
Um, and it is, it is one of the things that Lewis said can be manipulated to try to control people. Um, then there was a lot about gender roles, and we're going to come back to this. The idea um, of the platonic versus corporeal notions of love and the whole idea of God making man and woman in his image and that the fullness of the image of God is man and woman and that men and women are different and that is to be celebrated rather than to be eradicated. So then we spent some time with Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring. If you are snorkeling or scuba diving, please read that essay. It is a very important and I think underappreciated essay. It's not that long and it's pretty accessible, especially compared to Abolition of Man. Uh, so I would commend that to you. So we talked a little bit about some of these uh, ideas out of the essay, and I just want to go over um, a couple of those again. This first quotation, to nine out of ten of you, the choice which could lead to scoundrelism, I'm not sure that's really a word, but the choice that could lead to scoundrelism will come when it does in no very dramatic colors. Obviously bad men, obviously threatening or bribing, will almost certainly not appear. Instead, over a drink or a cup of coffee, disguised as triviality and sandwiched between jokes, from the lips of a man or woman whom you've recently been getting to know rather better and whom you hope to know better still, just at the moment when you're, not, you're most anxious not to appear crude or naive or a prig, the hint will come. It will be the hint of something which the public, the ignorant romantic public, would never understand. Something which even the outsiders in your own profession are apt to make a fuss about. But something, says your new friend, which we, and at the word we, you try not to blush for mere pleasure, something we always do. And you will be drawn in, not by the desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment, when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It's this whole idea of how seductive power is, how seductive wealth is, how seductive being in the in-group is. And as I said last week, if you want a modern version of this, well, it's not quite as modern as it was a few years ago, but go watch the movie Mean Girls. It's all about the inner ring. So Lewis concludes that with, the quest of the inner ring will break your heart unless you break it. But if you break it, a surprising result will follow. If in your spare time you consort simply with people you like, what a concept, not people that you can use to get ahead, you will again find that you have come unawares to a real inside, that you are indeed snug and safe at the center. This is friendship. Aristotle placed it among the virtues. It causes perhaps half the happiness in the world, and no inner ring can ever have it. So, moving on with the story. So remember, we left it last time. Mark is having a beer with Subwarden Curry, and they are enjoying how cool they both are and how superior they are to everyone else and those poor benighted idiots that work in the college. And so, um, Curry continues to talk to Mark, and he says, we're going to have this meeting this very day, and it's about a motion for the college to sell Bragdon Wood. 
and Bragdon Wood is a secluded, walled-in, peaceful area of well-tended grass and trees with an ancient well in the middle that is right in the middle of the college's grounds. An ancient legend claims the wood is the burial site for Merlin and that the well was named for him. An organization named the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, the NICE, the NICE, made a generous offer to purchase this wood to build a new headquarters building to house all their operations. And the NICE presents itself as a new organization which fuses the power of the state and the laboratory to create a place where thoughtful people could make a better world, free from the constraints of red tape and with an unlimited state-supported budget. He was writing this in the 1940s. At this meeting of the college fellows, the college bursar, the one who runs all of the finances, announces that the college budget looks really bad for the new year, and the meager stipend that the junior fellows get, which is probably half the people at the meeting, might have to be completely cut from the amounts already paid. So when the question of the sale of Bragdon Wood to the nice for a generous amount arose, only the old guard, those old fuddy-duddies, those stupid people who are not advanced like the progressive element, they are the only ones who object. Even though this land has belonged to the college since 1300. The other fellows clearly see the advantage of the sale and the motion carries. And interestingly, in the meeting, there is all of this doublespeak where you can't really tell what they mean. They like use these big words and are trying to impress people. And you're like, what? And the interesting thing is that this is a recurring element throughout the story, the confusion of language. So where do we see confusion of language? Babel, yes. So that runs all the way through. So we leave the fellows in their beautiful boardroom that's ancient and full of gorgeous furniture and looks out on these gardens, and we switch back to the Studdock's home where Jane is still unable to focus on her work. So she decides that it is a good idea to go shopping. So um, she goes out in the town to go shopping, and as she does, she encounters Mrs. Dumble, um, the woman who is the wife of her old tutor, who invites her home for lunch. And Mrs. Dimble's husband, Dr. Dimble, is a fellow at Northumberland, another college of Edgestow University. So Bracton College and Northumberland are both in Edgestow, which is a very small town. So Jane and her friends had happy memories of meeting at the Dimble's house while they were undergraduates. And the Dimble's live in this lovely ancient stone cottage by the river that is right next to the wall of Bragdon Wood. But Jane is distressed to learn that the Dumbles are being forced out of their cottage because they rent it from Bracton, and Bracton plans to sell their cottage to the Nice. The Nice, Nice. Along with several other properties, including the wood um, that includes Merlin's well. So as they are chatting over lunch, Dr. Dumble comes home, and he likes to hold forth about literary history. He's a true academic 
Um, if you get him started on his subject, it's hard to shut him up. So he is going on and on in James' view, and he remarks about how much historical accuracy there is or could be in the Arthur stories, and he distinguishes between the half-Celtic, half-Roman society um, that Arthur would have lived in, uh, and that that is not the same as what happened with the later French influence on the King Arthur stories. But he remarks that the Celtic language that Arthur spoke would probably sound something like Spanish. Well, when that happens, Jane nearly passes out. She turns pale, and they get really worried about her. Now, of course, the reason for this, remember, in her dream, the, you know, the head, which she's frightened of, sort of morphs into this ancient druidical person who's waking up and is speaking something that sounds like Spanish. So she's very upset by that, and she's upset enough about it that she kind of accidentally blurts out about her dream. She's very embarrassed about these dreams, so she kind of accidentally blurts it out, and she's very surprised that the Dumbles listen with great seriousness to her. And they suggest that um, she, uh, well, first she says, do you think I need to go to an analyst? Uh, and they say, no, but if they want to talk, if she wants to talk to someone, they have someone that they can send her to. So that's kind of what happens in the rest of this chapter. Now, there are several passages in these chapters that are really, really important. And I could, we could spend years on this book, so I'm trying to restrain myself here. But I want to, there are just a couple that I want to share and look at some of the themes, because Lewis doesn't do anything by accident. He is very methodical and purposeful. So if you have your book with you um, and want to read along, feel free, but I'm just going to read this to you. And I want you to listen to what Lewis is saying and what's implicit in this language. Though I am Oxford-bred and very fond of Cambridge, I think that Edgestow is more beautiful than either. One thing, it is so small. No maker of cars or sausages or marmalades has yet come to industrialize the country town, which is the setting of the university. Oxford had a car factory, a sausage factory, and a marmalade factory. So, the country town, which is the setting of the university, and the university itself is tiny. There are only two colleges, Northumberland, which stands below Bracton on the River Wend, and Dukes, opposite the Abbey. Bracton takes no undergraduates. We talked about this last week. It's that peculiar British thing where there are certain colleges that have no pupils. All you do is you, if you can get elected a fellow, you get a living for life, and you think great thoughts and do research. It is uh, that wonderful old word we don't use very much anymore, a sinecure. It is a sinecure. So, uh, Bracton takes no undergraduates. It was founded in 1300 for the support of 10 learned men, listen to this part, whose duties were to pray for the soul of Henry de Bracton and to study the laws of England. The number of fellows has gradually increased to 40, four times the original size, of whom only six, apart from the Bacon professor, now study law, and of whom none, perhaps, prays for the soul of Henry de Bracton. 
So remember earlier when we were talking about the abolition of man, we talked about this mission drift of universities that were set and founded, most all of them, on Christian principles for Christian learning and also had mandatory chapel. They all had magnificent chapels that looked like cathedrals to us, services multiple times every day, and that their job was to turn out people who were very well equipped intellectually to help propagate the Christian faith, and that they were also to help reinforce the laws and culture of the country. And Lewis is showing us right off the bat that Bracknan College has gone completely off the rails. So there are a couple of themes here that we could spend hours, but we're not going to. I'm just going to highlight them briefly. Beauty. Lewis is very careful to tell us how beautiful Edgestow is, how beautiful the college is, that it has not been spoiled by industrialization. One of the big themes in Lewis and Tolkien is the evils of industrialization, that there are some good things about it, but it also ruins the beauty of God's creation. If you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies, how many of y'all have watched the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay, good. Um, if you think about the works that Saruman makes when he cuts down all the trees and he has all those underground machines with the fire and all of that, that's the kind of thing Lewis and Tolkien just abhorred. And then also you see that Lewis is very careful to point out that this college was founded in its charter with a spiritual purpose, and that the charter was prayer. That's the foundation of what the guy left the money for. That's what enabled them to hire people to be there. The people are supposed to be hired out of that money left to be people who are praying. And instead of doing that, they've expanded the faculty to 40 people and quit praying altogether. And then understanding of the law. Lewis is a great believer, as we've said, in natural law, that law, good law, proceeds out of the Christian faith. That when you look at the Judeo-Christian heritage, that there is a way of ordering society and a concept of justice that emerges from that. So. Um, we could go down rabbit trails with that, but I'm going to skip to the next passage. This is just a lovely passage, and it's so important. So uh, I would commend to you to go back and reread this part on your own. Very few people were allowed into Bragdon Wood. The gate was by Inigo Jones and was the only entry. A high wall enclosed the wood, which was perhaps a quarter of a mile broad and a mile from east to west. If you came in from the street and went through the college to reach it, the sense of gradual penetration into a holy of holies was very strong. First, you went through the Newton quadrangle, which is dry and gravelly. Florid, but beautiful Gregorian buildings looked down upon it. Next, you must enter a cool, tunnel-like passage, nearly dark at midday, unless either the door into the hall should be open on your right or the buttery hatch on your left, giving you a glimpse of indoor daylight falling on panels and a whiff of the smell of fresh bread. When you emerged from this tunnel, you would find yourself in the medieval college, in the cloister 
of that much smaller quadrangle called Republic. The grass here looks very green after that aridity of Newton, and the very stone of the buttresses that rise from it gives the impression of being soft and alive. Chapel is not far off. The hoarse, heavy noise of the works of a great and old clock comes to you from somewhere overhead. You went along this cloister, past slabs and urns and busts that commemorate dead Bractonians, and then down shallow steps into the full daylight of the quadrangle called Lady Alice. The buildings to your left and right were 17th century work, humble, almost domestic in character, with dormer windows, mossy and gray-tiled. You were in a sweet Protestant world. You found yourself, perhaps, thinking of Bunyan or of Walton's lives. There were no buildings straight ahead on the fourth side of Lady Alice, only a row of elms and a wall. And here, first one became aware of the sound of running water and the cooing of wood pigeons. The street was so far off by now that there were no other noises. In the wall, there was a door. It led you into a covered gallery, pierced with narrow windows on either side. Looking out through these, you discovered that you were crossing a bridge and the dark brown dimpled wind was flowing under you. Now, just as an aside, if that doesn't make you able to envision there's something wrong with your imagination, and I would submit that there's something wrong with a lot of our imaginations because we don't feed them, and I want to just give a big shout out to the handout for tonight called The Redeemed Imagination. It's only front and back of one sheet, but it is powerful. And this is part of our Christian heritage as people made in the image of God that we have just let go. We have let go and we have embraced this idea that scientific types of knowing are the only ways of knowing. And that is not a biblical view of knowledge. So I want to unpack just a little bit. Lewis is doing some very interesting things here. Um, a little bit more and then we'll unpack. Now you were very near your goal. A wicket at the far end of the bridge brought you out on the fellow's bowling green. And across that, you saw the high wall of the wood. And through the Inigo Jones gate, you caught a glimpse of sunlit green and deep shadows. I suppose the mere fact of being walled in gave the wood part of its peculiar quality. For when a thing is enclosed, the mind does not willingly regard it as common. Now, there's a lot going on right here. So you could write a book just on that. Um, so part of what Lewis is doing here is he's setting the stage. He is pouring out about truth, beauty, and goodness in that part that we just read. And there are several aspects of this that it's easy when you read this to just sort of gloss over but when there's something in Lewis and you read it and you don't know what it means or there's a name and you don't know who it is, look it up because it means something. And particularly in this one, we've got Inigo Jones twice. Twice. Does anybody in here know who Inigo Jones is? Yes, good. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about him in a minute. So... There are just a number of things that are very interesting here. So we get Inigo Jones, not once but twice, 
we get this whole idea of a gradual penetration into the Holy of Holies, which of course is language about the temple in Jerusalem. And when you look, if you've never looked in the back of your Bible, Mess Bibles will have a chart somewhere uh, that has a diagram of the temple in Jerusalem, and it is fascinating. There are all of these courts, and you go from one of the, the steps into a big court, smaller, 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 and then all the way, the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwells, only the high priest once a year with a rope around his ankle could go in there because it was so precious and sublime. So this idea of penetrating into a holy of holies is important. So there are also, Lewis is playing with us with some of this, but um, he talks about these medieval concepts and the dry aridity of Newton. So who's Newton? Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton was one of the most famous pupils from Trinity College, Cambridge. Um, and part of what Lewis is getting at here is that there's a sense where science alone is dry and arid. And so it's no accident that immediately after the dry and arid, as you're penetrating toward the holy of holies, there's this beautiful green grass with the sunlight shining on it where you're next to the chapel. Imagine that. And in the chapel, there are clocks and bells that you can hear, bells that would summon you to worship, clocks that would remind you about the time of day and the passing hours. So there's a lot going on with that. And there's also the idea of pilgrimage, this idea of moving toward something as you walk, that this is not a purposeless, random wandering, but you're being drawn in to something. And then he talks about the dead Bractonians being commemorated and the busts and the urns and the legends on the wall and all of that. And that is emblematic of people who appreciate those who have gone before, who expect that the future generations will want to learn from the lives of those who have gone before. They will want to learn about their faith. They will want to learn about how God used them in the world. And because of that, they've been memorialized in this way. Contrast this with the idea of the progressive element. We are smarter than anyone who's ever lived on the face of the earth. All people who lived before us were idiots. We should throw out the accumulated knowledge of the human race because we are the Superman uh, what Nietzsche called the ubermensch, um, we are better and more powerful and all of those other people were ignorant. So it's a completely different view of the past. And we'll eventually get to Lewis's idea about chronological snobbery, but we're not there yet. Then he talks about going into this next part that he calls a sweet Protestant world. And even for Lewis, he is like really laying it on um, right here, because if you, we talked about Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, arguably, other than the Bible, the most important book in the English language, until, um, like, during the 18th century, every house in America, after having a Bible, the next book they had was Pilgrim's Progress. It used to be that every educated person in England and the United States 
had read Pilgrim's Progress. Now most people have not read it. But it's a profoundly spiritual book about a pilgrimage. Oh, a pilgrimage. And then he talks about Walton's Lives. Well, I don't know how many of you have read Walton's Lives, but Walton's Lives are biographies of several very significant people. Um, one is John Donne. Now, Lewis is playing with John Donne here because Jane is a modern woman who doesn't care for um, all of those old ideas. But of course, Donne is a metaphysical poet whose poetry is full of the idea of wonder and faith and love and all of that. So Walton's lives, one of the people is John Donne. Another is Sir Henry Wotton. Henry Wotton was one of the great um, sort of public intellectuals in England, and he was deeply Christian, but he was also a huge fan of classical architecture. We'll come back to that. Um, Richard Hooker, anyone? Yes, Richard Hooker, probably one of the great Anglican theologians near Christianity, um, comes from Richard Baxter. Baxter and Hooker and their friends um, were very, very much in the forefront of the English Reformation. Um, George Herbert, poet and Anglican priest. So all of these people are deeply Christian and they're deeply invested in beauty, whether it's beauty of language, beauty of architecture, beauty of theology. So it's not an accident that's not just a little throwaway that Lewis was trying to think of some book to put in there, um, that that is what's associated with this quadrangle. And then we have the sound of running water. Uh, those of you that um, have studied the silver chair um, will remember the stream and the silver chair. Um, you will remember in scripture, of course, the living water. Um, and then in the book of the Jeremiah about the broken cisterns that are full of dead water versus the living water that is only found in Jesus. So we hear the sound of running water. And then this is probably the most Lewisian sentence that you could come up with. In the wall, there was a door. I cannot tell you how many works of Lewis that sentence is in. It is in um, The Silver Chair. It is in The Last Battle. Uh, it is alluded to in The Weight of Glory. It's all over the place in Lewis. And the idea of that is that a door is something through which you go. And as you go through the door, you go out of one place or reality into another. Uh, a wardrobe door, for example. And then, in case you didn't get that, um, he then has you cross a bridge. Um, there is also a high wall, a thing enclosed, something that is not common. And this alludes to all sorts of things, but if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, this is very much like Aslan's garden, which represents the Garden of Eden. And remember, after uh, the fall, the 
Garden of Eden is metaphorically walled off by the angel with the flaming sword um, where you cannot go back. And so that garden is a thing enclosed that's perfect. It is holy. It is beautiful. So all Lewis, that was just two paragraphs, y'all, that we're unpacking. Um, he's put all of that in there, and it's all in there very intentionally because he wants us to understand that beauty, truth, and goodness and order are part of who God is. That is how God expresses himself. And that is why, when we were listening to how lovely is thy dwelling place, all Christians believe that all beauty proceeds from God and from the kingdom of God. And that as we lean into beauty, truth, and goodness, we are imitating the things that are in the kingdom of heaven. And that that is good for our souls. So um, just a word about Inigo Jones. Um, Inigo Jones is uh, tremendously famous in the architectural world. Uh, He was really the first significant modern, as opposed to ancient or medieval, architect in England. And he was the first one to apply the rules of Vitruvius. So I don't know how many of y'all have studied architecture or have studied Vitruvius, but Vitruvius writing De Architectura back in 1 BC, or the first century BC, he was getting, and we're going to talk about this in a later class, he is talking about the fact that there are certain proportions and ratios of beauty that are hardwired into the world, that God has placed there, and that it is we are most like God in using our creative gifts when we imitate those things. And so he said that that type of architecture is pleasing to people, that there is harmony to it, that it is a reflection of what goes on in the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things that is particularly important about Inigo Jones is he is the first one that brought this classical architecture of Rome and the Renaissance into England. So Andrea Palladio is one of the great architects that he brought. Um, Any of you who want to really experience what he's talking about here, next time you have the opportunity, go out to Drayton Hall. Because when Drayton Hall was built, they did not have an architect per se, but they had copybooks. And the copybook that they used in building Drayton Hall was William Kent's Designs of Inigo Jones. And so all of the woodwork, the proportion, the outline of the building, the shape of the mantelpieces, all of that is pure Inigo Jones. And Charleston's got a lot of that type of architecture that derives from Inigo Jones. But the interesting thing is you might have noticed that when Lewis mentions Inigo Jones, he mentions him twice on one page. Now that might make you pay attention. But you might also notice that he doesn't just say Inigo Jones, he says Inigo Jones something. Does anybody remember what it was? Gate. Well, that's a fun word to explore. Uh, It's a gateway. And the interesting thing is that Inigo Jones was famous for his gateways and that they were designed to be gateways that marked a major transition from one type of place 
into a very different type of place. And so um, here are a few examples of some Inigo Jones gateways. This is a long way away from the modern American chain link fence gate. And you will notice several things about, and there, there are literally hundreds of gates that Inigo Jones did. But when you look at these, you will notice, particularly the ones that are on your left, as you look through them, there is a long view and a long perspective. And it makes you, would you want to just stand at the front of that gate or do you want to go in? You want, you're drawn in because of the design of the gate. You'll notice that there is a major league symmetry here. There is proportion. There's use of different kinds of architectural elements. There's balance, there's beauty, all of that. And so what Lewis is trying to get at here is that these kinds of things are important and that beauty and moving from one place to another and realizing what kind of place you're in, those things matter and our imaginations matter and beauty matters. Um, this gate that is at the bottom over here, guess where that is? Any idea? Where did Lewis live at Oxford? Well, yes, that's true, but during the week, what college was he at? Yes, Maudlin College. That gate is one of the many gates in Maudlin College, Oxford. If you ever go to Oxford, please go to Maudlin College, and you will notice that you go from one quadrangle to another quadrangle, through a cloister, through a gate, over a bridge, over a river, into a protected wood. So you can experience what he's writing about here. So um, some practices of hope and wisdom based on this. Uh, let's say our Philippians verse, the reason I keep having us say this is because I really struggle to do this, and I imagine most of y'all do too. We are so conditioned to think that we have to think about whatever the stream of media or life throws at us. And yet the scriptures tell us that we are to take every thought captive for Christ, that we are to have the mind of Christ, and that there are certain things that we are supposed to focus on. So let's say this together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, first practice is pray. That part's important. Pray, because we need for our eyes to be washed and our minds to be washed through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to be able to not be conformed to this world. So pray to notice and to be alive to, and to contemplate and praise God for beauty. We live in a place where there is a lot of beauty, but it is all too easy to spend our time looking at our phone screen, or looking down at the sidewalk, or looking at the dashboard of our car, rather than just leaning into the beauty that is here. And just a couple of wonderful verses about that. 
for how great is God's goodness and how great his beauty. And let the beauty of the Lord God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. O worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. And then this great line from St. Augustine, Too late came I to love thee, O thou beauty, both so ancient and so fresh. And then from the theologian Paul Mizzi, The triune God, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, is the fountainhead of beauty, wherever and in whatsoever shape and form it is experienced. In manifesting himself to us, God comes in judgment, in mercy, in holiness, in grace, that is, in his splendor and beauty. Scripture overwhelms me when it speaks of the beauty of God's holiness. I was raised up to think that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, that it is something relative. I was taught that the artistic heart expresses its own intrinsic sense of beauty. Not having thought these things out, I initially assumed that I'm autonomous as far as art and creativity are concerned. The case turned out to be otherwise. Truth, goodness, and beauty all come down from above. They proceed from God. Second, and this might sound familiar because it was up there last week too, but if you're like me, you need to be continually reminded, pursue Advent disciplines. Um, An Advent wreath is a great way to break your step and have a little time to focus in on God's kingdom and out of this world. Um, Advent devotionals, I'm a big fan of Betsy Cahill's Advent devotional. Uh, One of the things I love about that is it has scripture reading, it has a meditation, it has a work of art and a piece of music. And so it's a great way to kind of lean into some of these things. Advent hymns, Uh, it's really easy to find Advent hymns if you're even moderately competent with a computer. Uh, And many of the Advent hymns are ancient hymns that have texts that are full of wonder and deeply informed by Scripture. Um, The Trinity College Advent Sunday service, I don't know if anyone had a chance to listen to that, um, but I would strongly encourage you, if you can find an hour to put that on a screen and turn the volume up, it is a profound service of worship. It's almost straight scripture and prayer with one of the best choirs in the world singing Advent hymns. Um, Also, and perhaps most importantly, go to church. Uh, The four weeks of Advent are designed to lead you like that pilgrimage we were talking about. They lead you in from one quadrangle to another to another toward that Holy of Holies at Christmas. Yes, Lessons and Carols this Sunday. Um, Bring friends. It's going to be wonderful. And then thirdly, if you find that your sense of wonder is overwhelmed by your tiredness and exhaustion from your job or struggles in your family or financial issues or whatever, one of the best things you can do to bring your sense of wonder back is to read some theologically informed poetry. Poetry is designed to fire your sense of wonder, and there's a lot of great Christian poetry out there. 
So I'm going to ask, this is very dangerous, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, which is dangerous after eight at night. Um, but just listen to this. Close your eyes and just listen. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down in things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Okay, you can open your eyes. But that is the kind of thing that if your sense of wonder is running on empty, will help bring it back. So um, let's wrap up by saying our verse one more time together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. O Lord God, we thank you that you are the author and source of all that is beautiful, true, and good. Lord, we confess to you how often and how easily we can become discouraged and conformed to this world and embrace the despair that pervades our culture. But Lord, you have called us to not look down, but to look up to you. Lord, we pray that you would fire our hearts with love for you, for wonder at your creation, most especially the wonder of your creation in each other person on this earth. Lord, we pray that you would call us to a costly love for others, that you would get rid of our selfishness and narcissism, and that you would instead open our hearts more and more fully to you and your kingdom. Lord, as we walk through this book, we pray that you would help us to learn to be discerning and wise, to spot error, and to embrace that which is true. Lord, that we might serve you with our whole heart. I thank you for each person here tonight and those listening, and pray your blessing on them in this week to come. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Next week will be our last class for 2021, and then we will pick up again on January 12th, and we haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. So thanks for coming. <laughs>